We are in part four of a sermon series that we have titled Cultivate. If you're new to our church community, as we gather together, we take some significant time in our gatherings to open the scriptures and to study them. And we do this because uh, we believe that God has given to us an amazing gift in this book that uh, we call the Bible. We call the scriptures uh, where he is giving to us a revelation of who he is and what he's like, um, namely pointing us to Jesus, who is the ultimate revelation of God and who he is and what he's like. And so uh, as we take time to study, we take a theme a topic, one of the books of the Bible. We look at it for several weeks in a row. And so a number of weeks ago, we started this series, like I said, that we titled Cultivate. And what we're thinking about and considering is the the big idea, um, the biblical theme of generosity. And so what does it mean and look like for us to take what it is that God has given to us in time and energy and resource, materially, um, financially, whatever that looks like, what does it look like for us to take all of that and image God well? Uh, to, to use that to bring his, his presence, his beauty, his glory into the world. And so uh, n- mostly when you think about generosity, especially when you think about it within a church, you're kind of expecting uh, the pastor to kind of beat you over the head and make you give more because uh, keeping up the building and paying me is really important. But uh, that's, that's not where we wanted to start. And that's not even where we're going with this at all because uh, I'm just here to serve you and I'm thankful that you guys give and help my kids eat. But... Uh, So that's not the point. Uh, We started the series talking about how the point is uh, to image God well. And so we started with what does God look like? Who is God and what is he like in terms of the way that he treats what it is that he has? And so we talked about how God in himself is love. And love by nature is not just a feeling and emotion, but it's, it's giving, like that's what love looks like. And so we looked at the Father and his generosity um, in Genesis before he even made human beings, like he started making things for us and for um, us to be together. And then even after human beings fall short and we bring brokenness into the world, he just keeps on giving. This is just the nature of who God is. Then uh, we looked at the nature of the Son as generous, that even when we might have some, some doubts and misunderstanding of who God is and what he's like in terms of his generosity, the Son steps in and he, in his incarnation, in his life, in his ministry, especially in his death, just gives and gives and gives. And then last week we looked at if even still we have a problem trying to uh, wrap our minds around the reality that God is generous, he gives his spirit and his spirit uh, gives us the ability, the power to image him well, to be the sorts of people that look like him, which is to be loving and therefore generous. This week, we, we enter into sort of the, the tail end of the series where we're gonna get a lot more practical. We're gonna ask like, if we do have the spirit, and if we know that God is in himself generous by way of looking at the son and the father, then how do we, since we have the power of the spirit inside of us, actually live that out? How do we actually live out this, this sort of being the person that we were meant to be made to be, to be image bearers of God? Of God sorry. And so with that in mind, today we're going to be uh, discussing the idea of contentment um, as well as covetousness. And so I hope you all came prepared um, because uh, after Thanksgiving, there's nothing like talking about greed. <laughs> um, especially after Black Friday. Uh, I, I didn't plan it this way. It wasn't my intention to like beat us down or anything like that. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of disclaimer too um, as we enter in and, and what this has done for me personally because um, I want us to all be on the same page here. Uh, but I want to take you to Luke 12 where uh, Jesus is having this conversation uh, with, a, with a man amongst a crowd and then he shifts and he begins to speak also specifically to his disciples. So he tells a parable and then he gives a teaching because of this man's question. And it's really quite telling about the human heart um, and what it means and looks like to be a follower of his. And so if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 12, and we are going to be starting in verse 13. I'm going to read all the way through verse 34, which is quite a bit, but we're in church. I don't know what you expected, but we're going to read the scriptures. So... If you don't mind, I'll read it, then I'll pray, and then uh, we'll dig in. So someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, 
soul, you have ample goods. Later for many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon... And all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you're to eat, what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Thank you for this moment in time that you've given to us to be in this place with this group of people, to have the opportunity to be reminded of your goodness through song, and all. Oh, thank you so much for these willing servants who lead us in that. Thank you for the opportunity to open your scriptures that you've given to us. Thank you so much for your spirit who leads and guides in truth. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come to the table and be reminded of the broken body and shed blood of your son. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for the children upstairs as they run around and we hear them and we recognize how it is that you have given to us such blessings with each one of them and the teachers, volunteers up there, and we ask the same thing for them, that they would grow in your likeness and your image. And so by your spirit that you've given to us that raised Jesus from the dead, would you do what only you can do? For we ask in the most matchless, the most precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. So uh, this, this morning as we uh, think about this idea of covetousness and contentment, um, I just want to start by, by being as transparent as I really possibly can, given the context that we're in. I've, um, I've been studying this and thinking through these things for, for the last week, and actually the last several weeks, because I knew that we were going to get to this place where we were going to be talking about greed. And uh, I know that greed is one of those things, covetousness is one of those things that um, most of us don't, don't recognize in ourselves, and I'm going to speak to that in just a minute. But as I'm thinking through these things, and I know the content that I'm going to bring, I'm aware of like the situation that we're in. And by that, I mean, you're there, I'm here. The lights are pointed at me, not at you. The chairs are facing me, not you. And I'm highly elevated, or at least more elevated than you. Which may cause m me to feel or to think as if I'm more accomplished or something. Um, it might even cause you to think that the guy who's got the lights on him is more accomplished in these areas too. And that's just the way our subconscious works. It works that way for me, it works that way for you. But I gotta tell you, as I th have thought through these things this week, I feel like probably some of you that I know personally would be better teaching this than me. Um, because there's way, way more going on in my heart than I realized in terms of this. So as, as I invite us into really this, this, uh, this teaching, um, I don't want you to think that as I bring stuff up um, through the teachings of Jesus here, that this means that I am at all like the person who's arrived there, like not even remotely close. In fact, most of what I'm going to talk through today, um, and especially as we get into what greed or covetousness actually looks like, 
um, is coming from things that I see in my own life. And so it's going to be a slightly different Sunday than normal because um, it's, not very, it's not very preachy. If you were here last week, like um, towards the tail end of, of last week's sermon, like it was very like, man, God is just in just like preachy, 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 right? Like just super like energetic and excited. Like God has given to us the power of his spirit. This week is, I think, a bit more sobering um, because there's, there's something about the teaching of Jesus here that he wants to pull something out of us, um, sort of like surgery, right? So, so when, you, when you go under the knife for surgery, like in our day and age, it's, it's not really like a huge deal. Doctors are way more educated. They have a lot more experience. You get drugs, like there's that. Um, so surgery is, is, but it's necessary, right? If, if there's something inside of you that needs to come out, it's going to hurt. Even the healing of that's going to hurt. And so today, that's kind of what we're doing, is this deep surgery where we're, we're going to put ourselves really kind of under the knife of Jesus, but with, with, with hopefully um, good outcome, because hopefully that's what surgery does, right? And so I want to think with you about this idea of, of covetousness and how it is that we can be content under uh, these three simple headings. Uh, the first is just the awareness of our sickness, that there is something inside of every single one of us. And so let's look at that. Then the understanding of that or the symptoms of that sickness so that we can actually see that it's down there. And then finally, if we can see that it's down there, how do we uproot it or overcoming that sickness, right? So in this, um, in this uh, context with Jesus here with uh, this huge crowd, he's actually, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 12, it says that thousands of people were gathering. Just imagine that for a second. Thousands of people are gathering to listen to Jesus, and then this conversation ensues. This conversation that ensues uh, has this guy who, amongst the thousands, raises a question. So just imagine being that guy. You're amongst thousands of people. You're listening to Jesus preach, speak, teach. You consider him to be authoritative in some regard. And you, amongst the thousands, are like, yo, I got a question. I got a question and I want you to answer this question. And what's the question that he asks? Well, look at me. I'm sorry, look back with me. Not look at me, you probably already are. So someone in the crowd says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Thousands of people. He's like, I see you as authoritative. I've got an issue. I want you to solve it. I want you to tell my brother to do something. It's most likely here what's happening is in this context, um, you know, 2,000 years ago, what would be happening is the inheritance, so from, from a father figure who passed away the estate, everything that was left behind would normally go to the older brother. So this is very likely like a younger brother who's like, well, what's the deal? He got everything, I didn't get anything. And that might be the way that it would normally go. He does get everything, so does he have to share it all? Well, th this younger brother thinks, well, he should at least be sharing some of it, right? So he's got this problem, and he wants Jesus as the authority to solve the problem for him. Now, with that in mind, this is really interesting because Jesus, he responds not by solving the problem, but actually by raising a bigger problem. So as he carries on, Jesus says this, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? So the guy, he raises the question, I, I want you to solve a problem for me as the authority in this. Like, I see you as a judge or arbitrator. And Jesus is like, that's, that's not the main reason why I'm here. Now, Jesus could do this, right? He could very easily said, how about you and your brother, we go have a cup of coffee, and like we sit down, and we discuss this whole situation, and I try to talk him into like actually giving you some of this like because he probably should. So Jesus could do that. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus essentially is saying to him, this isn't the primary reason for which I've come. In other words, it seems to me that this man has an issue with what's going on in everyday life, like a surface level issue, and Jesus is essentially saying, I haven't come to, to fix plain surface level issues. There's something more going on here for which I've come. I've come to solve a deeper issue, right? So you've got this surface level issue, but that arose from something else. So I'm not here just to solve that, I've got something else that I've come to solve. And so Jesus carries on, and here's what he says. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So I didn't come to fix the surface level issue mainly, I came for a different issue. 
there's a covetousness about this. Like the reason that this issue has arisen is there's something underneath and I've come to fix the thing that's underneath. And so I'm telling you to be on guard against the thing that's underneath. Like you're raising the question, but the only reason you're doing it is because there's something in your heart that's raising the question. And Jesus is saying, sure, I could, I could solve the surface level thing, but I wanna solve something deeper. He knows that there's something deeper, and it's this idea of covetousness. Now, when Jesus does this, he lets us in on a couple things uh, about the human heart in terms of what covetousness is, right? First of all, is that we're blind to it. If you notice, Jesus here, when he says, be on guard, look at it. When he says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. What he's doing here is he's saying that you apparently are unaware of something about yourself, There's something inside your heart that you're unaware of, and so I want you to be aware, right? So be aware, or if you think just beware, like if I was to say, when do you ever think of the word beware? Probably like when you're walking past a house and you see like beware of dog, right? If you've ever been to my house, you need to be aware of the dog. Not just because he's going to, like, he's not going to eat you, but he's certainly going to slobber on you and shed on you. Yeah, I have a St. Bernard, by the way, so he's like a 180-pound dog. And this morning, I gave him a little piece of bread from the communion that I cut up. Not, it, he didn't get slobbered on the communion, just so you know. But, but I cut off the tips of the, of the baguette, and I throw it down, and it went under a shelf. And I wasn't paying attention to him as I was cutting the communion. And he goes over, and he's trying to get this little piece of bread, like the tip of baguette, out from underneath the thing, and he just slobbered all over the shelf. Absolutely disgusting. Um, If you were walking past my house and he was outside, which happens pretty regularly, especially in the summertime, I might work on my laptop. He's sitting there, and if you don't notice him, and you walk by, and he barks. I mean, this dog has got a bark that will freak you out. If I were to put up a sign that says, beware of dog, and you saw that on your way into or passing my yard, you'd be like, oh, there's an awareness that there's a creature here that might scare me, right, that might do something to me. When Jesus is saying beware, that's what he's doing. He's raising an awareness. He's letting you know that there's something there that maybe you wouldn't have recognized before. This word is used by Luke uh, a few other times in his gospel narrative. One of the times that he uses them, which is really quite um, revealing, is when it is that the women see Jesus resurrected. That they become aware that something happened, right? So what Jesus is saying here is that I'm trying to raise an awareness because there's something lacking in your understanding. So he's saying beware of all kinds of covetousness. In other words, there's a blindness about us. It's like you're walking past the yard and you don't know that there's a dog there. It's like you're living life and you don't know that there's covetousness down there, right? That's what he's trying to say. So I'm going to raise an awareness for you to see something that you're probably unaware of. And this is, this is the reality of the human heart, right? Our blindness to covetousness is totally true. I mean, if you, if you just think about, like, how, how many times have you considered, like, when you, when you think about confessing your sin, does greed ever come to mind? Like, when, when you think about, like, the issues that you have in everyday life and practice with whatever, does, do you ever think, I need to confess my greed? I'll tell you what, I've sat with many people who've confessed many a sin, and I don't think I've ever had anybody come to me and say, I gotta sit down with you, Anthony, because I've got an issue with covetousness. Never happens. The reason that it never happens is because we're blind to that reality. We don't recognize that we actually have that issue. We We just don't see it, we're blind to it, right? But with this Jesus in raising the awareness, like there's something down there that you just don't see. He's saying, I want you to see it though. I wanna, I wanna raise an awareness for you because apparently this is deeply significant for him. In fact, he's going to tell a parable and then he's going to elaborate on the parable with a teaching. Why would he do that unless he thinks that this is a serious issue for us? So n- naturally speaking, we tend to be blind to this particular issue of covetousness, right? We just don't, we don't see it in ourselves. But beyond our blindness, even if somebody raises an awareness for us, oftentimes what will happen is in our blindness or even just within our sin, our flesh, we're in denial of it. So even if somebody said to you, there's a very good chance that you're covetous, we'd probably respond with, no, I'm not. 
And the reason that we would probably respond with, no, I'm not, is because within the human flesh is this, this uh, ability to compare, right? Where, where no matter where it is that we are in life with whatever it is that we have, we see ourselves and then we see those with less, we see those with more, and we always compare ourselves to those groups. And because of that, we look at those who don't have and we go, well, those are covetous people because they always, they just want more. We look at those who have more and we go, ah, they're just greedy. Look at how much that they have. Like there's something about our, our ability to justify wherever it is that we are, right? Where we just cannot see this. In fact, um, I was, as I was studying this, I came across this uh, sociologist from Boston University and she's written a ton of stuff. And here's one of the quotes um, that I found from her in one of her writings, she says this, um, and this is from an actual survey that she did. Only one third of American households that make more than $100,000 a year agree with this statement. Okay, so $100,000 a year. This is the statement that they, only one third would agree with. I can afford to buy everything I really need. Okay, so you're asking a whole bunch of people who make $100,000 a year, you say, do you have enough money to buy everything that you really need? She goes on, um, which means that two-thirds of American households making over $100,000 a year feel that they do not have enough to buy what they really need. Which makes you wonder, like, is that actually the case? Can $100,000 not really provide what we need? Well, what do we need? Like, that's a question, right? Because in our denial of this, often what happens is we take what it is that we want and we turn it into what it is that we need. Like, that's what happens in, in our minds. Like, we take what we want, and we go, oh, that's something that I need. So there's so many things that we have in our lives right now. Uh, I mean, just think about, like, technology. Think about vehicles. Think about whatever. Like, go down the list. Like, what do you really need in order to survive? And not just survive, but even to thrive, to be happy, to have joy. What do you really need? And we've turned a whole bunch of things that we just want into things that we need. So we're actually in denial of, of, of our issue, right? So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I could solve the surface level issue for you, but I haven't come to just solve a surface level issue. That's, that, that, if I solve this one, guess what? There's gonna be another one. Like it's never gonna end. There's always going to be the surface level issues. Instead, what I've come to do is I've come to help you pull out of your heart this thing that is bringing that surface level issue to pass. And so he wants to speak to this idea of covetousness. So what Jesus will then do is he's going to speak to us a parable, and then he's going to give an elaborate teaching. And as he does this, I think that there are seven symptoms of covetousness that he reveals to us, maybe more, but I have found seven. So I want to walk you through these seven different symptoms. And as I do, along with my disclaimer, um, I kind of want to set the stage here, right? Because we're going to see things that, that Jesus says um, that is, it's going to hurt. Like I said, it's like surgery. Like you're going to see yourself in the parable, you're going to see yourself in the teaching, and you're going to become aware of what's actually deeply rooted in your heart. And it could be very painful, but there's real good hope at the end of this teaching as well. And so I wanna go down this journey with you, and what I'd like to do is just walk through these seven different symptoms that we see of covetousness so that we can understand that it is actually down there, become aware of it, so that we can actually uproot it. So we're gonna walk through Jesus' teaching. I'm gonna look at some other places in scripture where these things are mentioned. And then what I'm gonna do, which is a bit different than what I normally do on a Sunday morning, is I wanna actually just ask you some questions. Questions that I've been asking myself in each one of these seven. And so we're gonna have slides for all of these questions too. I'll probably put them online so that you guys can have them. But I wanna actually, I want you to think through these questions as well as we look at these symptoms. Like how is this really true about me? And as you see that and you become aware, because you're supposed to become aware, like that's the point. As you become aware, then we'll hit the end and we'll go, okay, so how do I get this out of me, this thing? Like, what is the surgery that he really wants to do with me? And so let's look into these different symptoms. If you notice, Jesus says, again, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. And the way this is phrased in the ESV, which is what we have here, this English Standard Version translation, leaves out a word, um, and that word being kinds. Um, all kinds of covetousness, which is to say that there's a, a number of different ways that covetousness looks, right? So be on your guard against all different kinds of covetousness, which is to say that it can look differently. So let's dig into these symptoms. The first one I want to point out is anger. 
So look back at the story. This guy, someone in the crowd says to him, I'm going to sit on a stool so that I can just be kind of with you guys in this because I feel just as guilty as you will in a second. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Like, notice this, right? Something must be happening for this guy in a crowd of thousands of people to, to, to say, yo, something's going on in my life right now that is really making me mad. Like, my brother, my own brother, he's taken more than what he should have. Like, tell him to do something. This guy appears to be a bit angry. And so covetousness in our heart, like whenever we feel slighted, whenever we feel stolen from, whenever we feel like somebody has um, sort of disregarded what it is that we should be having, uh, very often the covetousness looks like, or one of the symptoms is this anger, where you begin to point your finger at a person or a group of people, you begin to target them and you say, well, they shouldn't be doing that to me, right? And that's kind of what's going on here. This guy, he's got an issue. He's got this, this anger, he's irritated, he's frustrated with his brother, and it's, it's fleshing itself out, right? In other words, this is what covetous can look like. In James chapter 4, you read this, and this is super telling, and I never really even picked this up until this last week. Notice what James says. He says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Why are you so angry with each other? Why are you so frustrated? Why are you so irritated with each other? Notice this. Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you, you desire and you don't have, and so you murder. Wow. Like covetousness brings forth murder? Of course it does. I mean, just look at, look at world history. What, why are so many people dying in wars? Well, covetousness. Like, that's, if you're angry, he's saying, that's what it is. He says you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Like he's telling us something about the human heart, that if there's something about, if there's, if there's covetousness in you, it can look like you being angry because you feel slighted, you feel stolen from, so you begin to point the finger at a person. So I've got a couple questions that we can ask ourselves. The first is this, do I get angry? Do I get frustrated? Do I get irritated when I don't get what I think I deserve? And this doesn't have to do just with money, it doesn't have to do just with possessions. Just think about time. Do you get angry, frustrated, irritated when that person's not going as fast at the green light? <laughs> when that person's not crossing the street fast enough in front of you for you to be able to carry on? Like, do you get angry, frustrated, irritated when you don't get what you feel like you deserve? Like, that's what's going on here. Do I target or point at a person or a group of people in mind with desire to get even? when I feel slighted? Like, is that what's going on in you? When you feel like you're not getting what you deserve, you, I gotta get even. And that's all that's like running in your mind. Like you play this, like, I got to make them pay. The reason is because there's covetousness going inside. The second one is this gloating. As, the, as Jesus carries on, he tells a parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I love this like self-talk, the way that Jesus lays this out. Like, just imagine this guy. I've got so much. What am I supposed to do with it all? Oh my gosh, I am just so loaded. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and goods. And I'll say to my soul, <laughs> I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. Lay up for many years. I'm sorry, laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, be merry. Like he's, in other words, he's, he's even kind of like gloating to himself. But, but this carries on into gloating to, with others, right? If, if we're the kind of people who take what it is that we have and then we exalt ourselves, like we go, well, I have, and not even, again, not just wealth, not just possessions, but of course think that, but even experiences, opportunities. If we look at what it is that we have, that we've been given, like surely by the grace of God, and we go, well, everybody should be looking at me. Look at how amazing I am. Look at my car. Look at my house. Look at my whatever. Look at my achievements. Like, look at my, look at my certificates on the wall. Look at the extra letters behind my name. Look at, look at the things that I've accomplished. Look at the people that I know. Look at the whatever, right? If we start taking what it is that we have and we exalt ourselves above others and say, look at me, look at what I have, he's saying that's, that's a symptom of, of covetousness that you have 
and you put your pride, your ego, everything into what it is that you have. In James chapter two, it's a little bit lengthy, but notice this. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, right? So you got a rich person. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges and with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So here what James is pointing out is essentially like capitalizing or elaborating on the teaching of Jesus, that we're inclined to think of ourselves more highly than others. And that is just a symptom of covetousness, of greed. And so you have, and then you elevate yourself, you look down at others. Or you have and you say, look at me, right? So some questions to be asking ourselves. Do I find myself wanting others to notice what it is that I have in material possessions? And by this, I, I don't even mean like strangers. Like I think with stuff like this, it, it's easy to go, well, no, I don't care what other people think. You're a liar. You totally care what other people think. And, and if you go strangers, yeah, I don't care what strangers think about me. Okay, what about your parents? Do you care what your parents think about you and your material possessions? What about your children? They think about you and your material. What about the people who are really close to you? What about your in-laws? Do you, do you care what your in-laws think about what it is that you have? Like you're trying to impress them. What about your boss, your coworkers? Like your material possessions. Do you want them to know that you have A, B, or C, that you've achieved X, Y, or Z? Like is that a big deal to you? And then not even just material possessions, but do I find myself wanting others to notice what I've accomplished or experienced? Right? Where we, like I said, we put up the certificates, we let people in on how much education we have or the things that we've accomplished, the people that we've met, the things that we've done. Like, do we find ourselves name dropping or referring to where it is that we've gone, what it is that we've done because we just want everybody to look at us? Like, this is a symptom of covetousness. Like, and this is... Yeah, it's within every single one of us. So we carry on. The next one. You guys okay so far? Is this too much already? Because we've got like four more. <laughs> okay. So he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's about worry. Worry, I've mentioned this a number of weeks in a row, but worry really has to do with like looking into the future and asking the what if and not having an answer and pulling it into the present. So when you look into the future and you ask about tomorrow or next week or next month or next year or even 10 years from now, and you go, well, I don't know if God's actually going to provide, and you pull that questioning into the, into the current moment, what you're doing is you're, you're creating an anxiety about you because you're saying, I don't know if there's actually an answer to this. And so you begin to try to take control, which is what we're going to talk about in a second. But in that moment, are you able to live in the moment with the now, right? Or are you constantly concerned about the what if? Because the constant concern about the what if is just proving that there's something down there. Beware of that thing, right? So in Philippians, Paul the Apostle, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And pay attention here. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. And here's what he says to do about this. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice what he's saying here. When we concern ourselves with the what if about tomorrow, the what if about next week, the what if about next month or next year, what we're doing is we're pulling questions about the future that we are, we, we're not paying attention to the answers that have been given to us in, in Christ. We're asking questions that we're pulling into the present and causing anxiety. He's saying, instead of asking what if, go to God with prayer and supplication, ask him to provide, but also with this, with thanksgiving. You know what thanksgiving is? Thanksgiving is pulling from the past into the present. So thanksgiving is saying, well, if you've already done this, I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna pull it into the present so that it can help to inform my future. 
right? So he's saying, you're gonna ask God about the future, but do it in light of the fact that he's already given so much in the past. So when we forget that, and we dwell on this, and we forget even to pray or to ask God to provide, we end up with this worry, right? So some questions to ask ourselves. Is it difficult for me to live in and embrace the now because I'm consumed with thoughts about my future? Like, do I find myself really unsettled just today because I'm so concerned about what may happen tomorrow? Is that a reality for you? Do I find it difficult to look at my past and present and give thanks for all that I have? Would you consider yourself a person who is thankful? And there's a difference between grateful and thankful. I just saw this quote from Tim Keller the other day. It was brilliant, but he says, grateful is like a feeling, and that's awesome. Be grateful, feel that. Thankfulness is actually projecting, like saying that out loud. It's, a, it's actually being thankful, which means I'm thankful for you, or thank you for doing that, right? Is it hard for us to give thanks? He carries on, and uh, the next one, so he, he says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Now, these ravens, they're, they're going out and they're gathering what they need for the moment, right? In other words, they're secure in the now. And control is all about insecurity, which is really where, part of what covetousness is, right? It's all about trying to control. So are we the kinds of people who think about money in such a way that it's going to give to us a sense of security to keep us from maybe being in uncomfortable situations, keeping us even from tragedy? Like, is that the way that we think about money? Is money for us a means by which to control the future? Now, here's the tricky thing, right? Is money can't control, like it can control certain things, maybe certain circumstances and situations, but not the ones that matter the most. Like, think about, the, think about tragedy, right? When you think about tragedy, the greatest tragedies that any of us will ever face are relational or our own personal health. And money can't fix either of those. Like, those are the things that matter to us the most, and money can't fix it. So we're storing up in hopes that we can be secure to avoid tragedy, and yet the greatest tragedies, money can't help at all. It, it can't heal relationships. It can't heal your health. I mean, maybe to some degree, but we're all going to die. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a millionaire. Like, you're going to die. Money can't fix these things, and yet we look to it for security. Just recently, um, this last week, I was listening to a, to a podcast, and this guy was talking, they were talking about money and finances and, and uh, what it is that they would like to have. And this guy was like, well, I don't really care to have a nicer car, a bigger house. Uh, I don't care to live in a different neighborhood. I don't care about these sorts of things. He's like, but if somebody could say to me, there's a million bucks in a bank account, you can't spend it on anything unless a tragedy happens. He's like, I'd like that. I'm like, me too. <laughs> like to know that there's, there's just like a surplus back there. Like I don't, I don't actually care about a bigger house, a nicer car, but to feel safe, like just to feel safe. But money can't actually provide that. Earl Ellis, who wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Luke, he says this about the guy in the parable. He says, he thought he was an owner, but he found out that he was owned. He thought that he was in control, but he found out that he didn't have control. He thought that he was a landlord, but he found out that he was just a tenant. In other words, he's bankrupt. He's out of a whole bunch of stuff, but it doesn't provide the sort of security that he thought that he was going to have. In 1 Timothy, Paul says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. We're not gonna take anything out. Like, do we look to wealth as a means of security? Now, of course, I'm not saying don't have a retirement plan or a 401k or like that sort of thing. That's not at all what I'm, what, what I'm saying. There's, and there's plenty of other scriptures to speak to that, even from Jesus' own words. But are we looking to it to provide something that only God can actually provide? Because security is not found in wealth. Like we can't take it with us. So some questions. Am I seeking more or storing up what I already have 
because I want to feel as though I can keep tragedy away. Is that really the reason that we're keeping, that we're storing up more? Is that really what's behind the keeping and storing up? Because there's a difference between a retirement fund because you're concerned for your spouse or your kids and you want to make sure they're well taken care of versus security. Because there's no security in money. Or am I more concerned about my life looking and feeling like I want it to? In other words, the, the, the sort of, um, what I mean by this is uh, your comfort, right? Am I more concerned about my comfort or looking and feeling like I want it to than happiness of those around me? Because oftentimes we keep what it is that we have because we're so concerned for our own comfort, our own security, when there's in fact plenty of people around us in need, but we keep socking that money away because we're concerned about our own security. This next one I think was really telling for me. I hadn't picked it up in the past. So he carries on and he says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? Now, so when we were talking about gloating, that's if you already have. If you have, and you want people to look at you for what it is that you have, that's a sign of covetousness. But here what we're talking about is when you don't have, and you want to pursue those things so that people will look at you. Right? And there's, there's a difference, because what's going on here is Jesus is letting us in on the fact that you can have nothing and have covetousness. But you can also have a ton, which he referred to this guy in the parable, and have covetousness. So it doesn't matter how much you have, you could have nothing, you could have much, but we all have this desire to get more. Here, he's talking about the array of these lilies. Look, look at these lilies. Look at how pretty they are. Everybody looks at them, they smell them, they're like, oh, these are amazing. Solomon in all of his glory, like look at how beautiful he is. Is that what you're concerned about? Is what he's getting at? Are you concerned about being an amazing lily? Are you concerned about being a Solomon? Are you concerned that the people won't perceive you to be as special because you don't have the name brand, you don't have the right car, you don't live in the right place. You don't, like, is that a concern for you? I'll tell you, what, when I was growing up, um, my parents didn't have much at all. So we, uh, we lived in a very small house um, in Southern California, which might make you think they had a lot, but trust me, back then it wasn't as big of a deal. Now it's way more of a big deal. But we didn't have much at all. So we ate mac and cheese in every kind of form and fashion that you could imagine, right? So mac and cheese with hot dogs, mac and cheese with hamburger, mac and cheese with like whatever, you name it, right? My parents came up with all sorts of interesting things. We're, we're gonna have spaghetti normal with marinara, then we're gonna have chili spaghetti, then we're gonna have whatever kind of spaghetti. Like it's just cheap. So they just, <laughs> they came up with all sorts of things. And so I basically wore hand-me-downs and I never had like a brand new pair of shoes and I certainly never had name brand shoes. And all I wanted so bad when I was like, 10 or 12 years old was to just have a name brand pair of shoes. You guys, anybody in that boat with me? Like, oh, that's all you wanted, right? Because your friends had them and like it meant something. And so just, just get me a pair of Nikes or even Reeboks for crying out loud. In the, in the late 80s, it was like even Reeboks, like just get me. And all I ever got was, was hand-me-downs or stuff from, you know, secondhand stores. And uh, so I begged and I pleaded my parents, like just get me a pair of name brand shoes for Christmas, like that's all I want. And uh, my mom, I remember, like, it was the middle of December, I think, and she was, she was like, trust me, you're going to love the shoes that we got you. And I opened them up, and they, they weren't Nikes or Reeboks. And I was like, this doesn't even count. Like, <laughs> like nobody's going to care about these shoes. Nobody's going to look at me. That's what I cared about. And I don't, I don't know if there's much difference 30 years later. <laughs> Isn't it weird how we concern ourselves with what it is that we're wearing? The, the stitching in the left side of the jacket that we have, the, the sticker on the back, or the plaque, placard thing on the back of our car, or the, the neighborhood in which we live, the school that we send our kids to. Like, it's weird that we concern ourselves with these things and we're pursuing them really just because we want people to look at us, right? In First Peter, he says this, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Don't let these things that like everybody is looking at and concerned with, don't let these things consume you. So some questions. Do I care about what others think of me based on the clothes that I wear, the car that I drive, or the place that I live? 
Like, does that really matter to me? Other people's opinions. Am I concerned more about my style or name brands or the places that I can shop or want to be able to shop and how I can use money to bless others? Like, do those things matter to us, right? The next one, um, I had trouble kind of titling, so I just used a word that Jesus uses, but there's actually far more to it than this, so I'm speaking to the idea of worldliness. So notice what he says. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Jesus compares and contrasts his disciples and what they should be pursuing versus what the world seeks after. So that's why I'm calling it worldliness, but there's actually more to it than this. Um, what we don't see right here in this particular teaching is elaborated on by Jesus in a number of different places, which has to do with the way in which the world gives themselves to gods, false gods, lowercase g gods, right? where the world is seeking after something, but only because they become enslaved to that thing. That thing is telling them, come here, come here, you can get more. Right? And so they begin to seek after those things. In other words, we're talking really about paganism, like false gods. When Jesus speaks this way, he's not just talking about an ideology. He's talking uh, about a force. He's talking about a slave master. See, most of us, and I mentioned this last week, most of us think about idolatry um, in, in terms of like inanimate objects. That's not the way that Jesus speaks about money and the way the world thinks about money. He speaks about money in terms of a very animated thing a force. He almost personifies it or he gives it, to, he gives it this authority. In fact, if you look in Matthew 6, here's what he says. No one can serve two masters. Notice that. Masters. He's not, money, money isn't just, it's not an inanimate object. It could be a master. He like personifies it. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. That's the way it's translated in the ESV. But if you look back at like the King James Version or even other translations, you've probably heard this before. No one can serve both God and mammon. You've heard that before because mammon was an actual deity during that time. There's no other object that Jesus gives a, a title to insofar as a deity. Like he refers to an actual deity in their time, which is to say that when Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money or mammon, He's talking about a demonic force. It's not an inanimate object. It's seeking to be your slave master. Not in, not in some kind of, you know, you carve something out of wood and you give yourself to it or whatever other thing that you give it. No, there's something behind that that wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. And we give ourselves to it, and that's what it does. And so Jesus here, he's, he's saying, listen, you need to be aware not just of all these other things that I've listed so far up until this point, you need to be aware that behind almost all of those things is something that wants to bring brokenness to you and bring your brokenness into the world as it is adamantly opposed to who God is and what God is like, who wants to bring life and light into the world. So when we give ourselves to these things, what we're doing is we're letting that thing bring more brokenness, more chaos into the world. So some questions to ask ourselves. Do I truly trust Jesus as my king? when it comes to my wealth. And I mean that, like king, and I mean trust and I mean king in, in those kinds of ways, right? Because when I say trust, I'm not talking about like an intellectual assent or a statement of faith, like a check in the box, like you actually believe that Jesus is your king. Of course, most of you in here, if you're followers of Jesus, you would say, he is my king. Do you trust him though? Like with your wealth. When he talks the way that he does about giving, when he talks the way that he does about the way that these things can control us. Like, do we really trust him or is there some other king? Because th that's a reality. Like, there is a king trying to master you. So is there an idol I might be denying that is trying to take me captive or has already? I hate to do this, but let me just answer that for you. Yes, absolutely. There is an idol. Like, there is a there is an animated force trying to steal your soul. For sure, it's happening. And so he's trying to raise awareness. This last one, stinginess. He goes on, he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and where no moth destroys. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. I wouldn't at all try to minimize Jesus' command here, but I don't think it's universal. He gives it sometimes. He doesn't give it to others. 
But here, I think what he's getting at is the heart. If, there's, if it's extremely difficult for you to take what it is that you have and to give it away, if, if you look at everything that you have in terms of how it is that you can use it for yourself, like if that's what happens when you think about your next paycheck, is what, what can I get from me out of this? Tax season's coming up. Most of us are probably getting a return because the government, whatever. <laughs> Sorry. Wasn't in, wasn't in my notes. You're going to get something back. What are you gonna, what's your first thought? Is it, how can I bless other people with this money that I didn't even have all year? Like, it's, it's in a sense extra. I mean, some of us probably bank on it. I, like, I kind of have to bank on quite a bit of it. But what about that's extra? Like, we didn't need it most of the year. Is the first thing that comes to mind, like, when you get a raise at your job, is the first thing that comes to mind, I didn't need this before. I was fine. Is it, can I get a new car? I can afford a greater car payment. I can get the new phone. I can, or is it, I can give more. Like, I can bless the people around me. Is that the first thing that comes to mind, right? Notice what Jesus says in Luke 6. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Ah, That's a bold statement right there. Give to everyone who begs from you. I know the story, you guys. I'm in the same boat. There's always a reason where we can come up with, we can justify why it is we shouldn't help that person. The story plays in your mind. They're going to do this with it. Last time somebody did that with it, whatever, you go on, you play that on that story. Or I gave it and I expect it back. I get it. Like, I'm there with you. But this is really clear. Give to everyone who begs from you. Don't demand back what you give. He wants us to live the same way that he does, which is in constant generosity, not expecting anything in return. So some questions. Is it difficult for me to give of my time, my energy, and my money? Like, is it difficult? Do you you find that to be just a hard thing? This one I think is even more telling. Is my giving intentional and thoughtful, or is it just a guilt-ridden reaction? Is it intentional and thoughtful? Like, like what I just said, like, are we planning? Are we putting in our budget like how it is that we want to bless other people? Or is it an afterthought? Or is it only because you just heard this sermon today? I don't want it to be because you only heard this sermon today. I want us to think about what God might have for us and how he might use us. So, see you next Sunday. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Um, Beware of all kinds of covetousness. It seems Jesus is trying to let us in on what it is that wants to steal our life and, and how it is that when that thing steals our life, brings more brokenness into relationships and into the world. And if that's the case, and it is, how does he plan to pull this thing out? How does he plan to fix us, right? Where, where's the surgery here? Like we've, we've seen the diagnosis, all the symptoms are there. How does he get this thing out of us? So notice a couple things. First is knowing our future treasure and then knowing our Father's pleasure. So he says this, instead, instead of all this, even to the guy who's, hey, fix this situation so that I can get some more, instead of that, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Notice the future promise that he gives here. These things will be added to you. There's no question about this. So, so in other words, when, when you wonder about the what if that we were talking about, the what if, well, what if I actually do what Jesus is asking me to do? What if, I, what if I do sell my possessions and I give to the poor? What if I do intentionally involve generosity into my budget? What if I do that? Oh my gosh, I'm always so afraid if I was gonna do that. He says, well, here's what if. Let me tell you what will happen. If you go out of your way to include generosity in your life. And if you look at God for all of who he is, here's what I'm telling you. You will get. You will. It's a promise that he's making. In other words, what he's doing is he's saying, you, you in your head have an uncertain future and that's probably why you're not living in the image of God that he's called you to. You have that picture and he's fixing it. Because in our understanding, it's if I live this way, then something terrible is going to happen. I'm not going to have enough. I'm not going to have security. I'm just, whatever, right? You go down, go down the road. He's saying, no, no. What actually will happen is he will bring his kingdom. Like that's what's going to happen. So we question it 
But he's saying, no, you, it's because you're pulling a false reality of the future into the present, and that's why we're not generous. But I'm giving you a true reality of the future to draw into the present. The true reality is that his kingdom will come through you. Like, there's no question about that. Like, just think about this, you guys. When, when, when we think about, like, oh, I might not get a return on this investment because I'm giving to this person who's in need or I'm helping this organization or whatever, and then we go, oh, my gosh, it's not going to, whatever. He's saying, no, absolutely. Every single time you give, every single time, it brings his kingdom. Every time. You might not see it right now. You might not get the ROI that you want right now, but you are going to see the kingdom. Listen, here's what he's saying. One day, we're going to walk around this earth that he makes new, and we're going to be hanging out with the saints, and you're going to have a conversation with somebody that probably could say to you, remember that time you gave me two bucks on the corner and you wondered if that was going to do anything? I spent it on drugs. But I'm here right now with you. That was not a waste. I get, I get that, like, there's, uh, of course, the practical implications of this. I'm not saying go and give to, like, anybody and, like, be wise about it. But what I'm saying is there's going to be a day when you're going to see people face-to-face that might even say to you, you remember that time that you gave to that organization that you never got to see the fruit from because they were in Africa or wherever it might be? And you're going to get to meet them. And you're going to get to see, like, the kingdom came through your giving. Like, without a shadow of a doubt, there's not a dime that you could give away that will not contribute to heaven on earth. Like, that is the reality that he's saying here. How can we know that that is really true, though? And I think it it comes down to really the Father's pleasure with us. So notice what Jesus also says here. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. Like, when you ever ask yourself, like, what does God want to do? Jesus is like, he wants to give you the kingdom. Like, that's what he wants to do. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to withhold anything from you. He doesn't want to make your life terrible. Like, he's not commanding you to give so that you'll just live in poverty and be like, oh, I'm so godly in my poverty. No, he wants to give you the kingdom. Like, that's his good pleasure. And this is after Jesus mentions all these things about how he wants us to live. Like, God's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. How can you know that for sure? Jesus has this conversation with a, with a Jewish leader in John chapter 3. His name is Nicodemus. You're probably familiar with this conversation. He's talking about being born again. And in this very famous verse, he mentions, like the, he mentions the character of God and what God is really all about. And in John 3, 16 through 17, notice what he says to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world. And this isn't just like a God felt the warm fuzzies as he looked down. He was like, oh, I love you. No, that's not at all. God so loved the world that it results in something. He gave his only son. He gave. His love looks like giving. And what does he give? His son, his only son. So that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So he's giving now his son for the sake of giving eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, be be. Escape, like escape from the mammon. Escape from the thing that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. God sent his son to set you free from that and to give you eternal life. Now think about this for a second. This is hugely important. When we think about giving, or what we're really doing is we're exchanging, right? When we think about money, we use money as an exchange. We take the dollar and we look at what it is that we want in return for the dollar. And when we make that exchange, what we're basically saying is, I want this more than this, right? This, this, I I could get this in its exchange. So I'm willing to give up this to get this. We place value in this, but we place more value in this. That's why we're willing to give it up. That's how exchange works, right? You wouldn't exchange something unless you valued it more. What's going on here is an exchange, an exchange where God is describing to us what it is that he values. And he's saying, I've had eternal relationship with my son, my only son, who's been enjoying the glories of heaven and the praises of angels. And even though he has all of that, there's something that he values even more. Like he's willing to exchange for, to get in return. 
That's you. That's me. That's his church. That's the, like, that's what he values more than anything is us. Like, if you want to know if God is actually wanting to give you the kingdom, you're his treasured possession. He sent his son for you. Like, without question, your giving will result in the kingdom coming. Without question. So what we're going to do now is I'm going I'm to pray, and I'm going to invite us into coming to receive. Because um, what we have at these tables is exactly what we were just describing. He sent his son that we might, we might inherit eternal life. And you have it now. And so we've got the broken body. We've got the shed blood of Jesus to confirm this reality. So I'll pray, and then I want you to think just deeply about how it is that God is giving you through this meal. Father, thank you that you continue to provide for our needs. Thank you that we can rest assured that even in the brokenness of our own hearts and our own covetousness and greed, you want more than anything for us to be content and to have life and life to the fullest. We believe that because you sent your son. And so help us to rejoice in that this morning, to take in what is eternal, him, life through him. Give to us a remembrance of this in his name.